You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for your goodness that you are not a far-off God, that you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus and that we have the scriptures that bear witness to him. We pray now that through this power of the spirit, you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word, that we would be those who do not walk away unchanged, but that we could respond to your word today with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. Great to see all of you here today, uh, especially if you're visiting today. I want to welcome you. I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. And since early September, we've been um, diving into a book in the Old Testament of the Bible called the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, There's a genre of ancient literature called the wisdom literature. And there's three books in the Bible that are um, in this genre. That is the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Proverbs. And despite being these really ancient books, they are shockingly contemporary for the way that we're living life in this world. And so we're calling this series, How to Be Human, because one of the driving questions of the teacher or Kohelet who wrote this book is what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to have a a good and wise life in a world that is complicated and broken and befuddling as the one that we live in? And that's like a super contemporary question, right? Like we all wanna know that. This world just feels at times like it's spinning out of control. What does it mean for us to live a good life in a world like ours? So today we're looking at what's probably the most famous passage in the book of Ecclesiastes from Ecclesiastes 3, uh, probably made famous by Pete Seeger. And so we're gonna hear Karen uh, read that to us. So if you wanna open your Bibles to um, Ecclesiastes 3, it'd be great actually if you have a Bible to have it open to that text today because I'm gonna kind of get deep into the poem um, that's written there. So let's hear God's word, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that the people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. This is the word of the Lord. I want to show you something, a picture of something that's pretty cool. Kids, raise your hand if you like Legos. You like Legos? So this, this is... Um, my youngest daughter, Franny, this is her Lego city that she has spent probably the last two to three years constructing. Um, and it's fascinating. I wish that you could see it up close. Feel free to just drop by our, by our house and see it. Uh, not all of you at the same time, but feel free to come one by one. Um, and, it, you know, there's, there's um, houses and police stations, train stations, there's, you can see the airplane coming in to land in Lego International. Um, you know, there's even like a chapel. That's actually Hogwarts in the corner, but that's the local church. You know, there's a beach. There's all sorts of things. And what's so cool about it is that if you, act, if you look carefully, there's tons of these little Lego people, and there's all these little stories happening. There's all these beautiful little stories happening in all the streets and different locations in the parts of the city. The, the great thing... And that's the great thing about Legos, right? The great thing about Legos is that you can build these worlds and you can create these stories where everything literally just clicks into place, right? Everything is ordered and controlled. Each piece is exactly where you want it to be, buildings, landscapes, people. In this city, life is exactly how you plan it. And wouldn't it be awesome if life were like that? <laughs> If life were like a Lego city, right? And, and what the book of, you could look at, say it this way, that the book of Ecclesiastes, what it's trying to do, it is trying to help us to live well and wisely, not in that city, but in the world as it actually is. Not the world that we wish it would be, not that we want it to be, but the world as it actually is. We might wish, I think all of us do, that the varied pieces of our lives, people, places, circumstances, relationships, that all these pieces like nicely fit together in a very clear planned out storyline that is controlled. We all would wish for something like that. But the world as it actually is, isn't like that. It's so much more complicated and messy. Sometimes the colors don't match. Sometimes the pieces are all wonky. Sometimes the piece you know would finish the project is just completely missing. Sometimes it just feels like the whole city is coming crashing down. So our times... Our life, our times are not at all the predictable storyline that we wish it were. This is not Legoland, y'all. So Kohelet, our teacher, is on a journey to discover the meaning of life. And he's tried out a few things. He's tried out wisdom. He's tried out pleasure. Uh, he's tried out work. And what does he keep finding? All of it is what? What's the word? Hebel. 
Pebble, actually, somebody made me a Life is Vapor bumper sticker. I put it on my car this week. It's pretty awesome. I'll give you one if you want. But yeah, he's, find, he's finding the life is hebel, life is vapor, which means it's befuddling, it's confusing, it's enigma, it doesn't make any sense. And so he, today in our passage, he steps back from his experiments and he sort of looks at life in a panoramic view and he's looking at the challenging and complex issue of time, time. He's reflecting on the fact that often as human beings, our life, our time, the storyline of our lives feels really out of control. It feels unpredictable. It feels like that we have very little agency at times in the way that our life is actually running. And if the pieces did somehow fit all together, then we certainly cannot see how. And so he's asking the question this morning, what do we do about that? How do we live in a world in which the times of your life often feel so out of control and it is just so difficult to make sense of the storyline of our lives in the world. So let's look at that challenge together. First, let's look at the problem of time. And I'd love for you to just look with me at the poem, if you have it open. It's just, this is a brilliant piece of ancient literature. Um, And if you notice, it's just a poem that's reflecting on all the different kinds of experiences that make up being a human being. Each line, if you look at each line, um, there's a pair of experiences in each line. And he's using a figure of speech called a mirism which is um, in which two polarities together make up a whole. So for example, you could say like, I did the whole thing from top to bottom. That means you did did it all, like all in between. So verse two, he says a time to be born and a time to die. That's a mirrorism that refers to all of human experience in life from birth to death. So in verse four, he says a time to weep and a time to laugh. Taken together, that is meant to refer to the whole spectrum of human emotion, right? From joy to sorrow. The other thing you notice is that there's 14 pairs in all, which is double the number of seven, which is the number of perfection and completion in the Bible. So taken together, these 28 experiences are are meant to communicate the whole sweep, the whole run of the human situation from birth to death, from joy to sorrow, from peace to war, everything that happens. This is not prescriptive of what you should do as a human. This is descriptive of what it means, what it's like to be a human being in this broken and befuddling world. And what do you notice? What do you notice from this poem about being human? It's pretty complicated, right? There are some like wonderful things about being a human, like birth and laughter and dancing and embracing and mending and loving. And then there are some really terrible things like killing and tearing and weeping and grieving and loss and hate and war and death. And his point is, is that all of these things are happening all at the same time. Both beautiful things and terrible things are all swirling around us in each other's lives, out in the world at once. And my guess is, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands today, but my guess is that there is, there's about 400 people in this room right now that there is at least one of us in this room who could relate to every single one of these 28 named experiences. There are some of you who just had a baby and you are just celebrating a life. And there's others of you who just lost somebody that you love and you are grieving a terrible death. Uh, There's other, there's some of you in the room because I, because I know that, you know, you just got the job of your dreams. There's others of you who just lost the job that you love and you have no idea what you're going to do next. There's a couple of you in this room who are prepping for the Richmond Marathon 
and you're building up your body, you know, to be strong and fast. There's others of you in this room who are prepping for chemo, and you are prepping for your body literally to be torn apart. Some of you are teenagers, young adults. You feel like your whole life is ahead of you. The world is your oyster. Others of you are in the last few years of your life, and you feel like the shadows are coming and the world is closing in. And what's crazy, y'all, is we're all in this room together. All of these experiences. We're all right here in this space. And what makes it feel even more complicated is that almost all of these things are totally out of your control. You, you, you don't decide when you're born, it, you know, whether you're born in 1942 or 1982 or 2022. You have no choice in the matter. You have no decision over the hour and the day of your death, whether it's tomorrow or in 20 years or in 50 years, right? You can't control when a season of your life is just joyful and full of laughter or whether it's a season that brings deep grieving and loss. Um, sometimes you head into something. I actually talked to a couple of people in between the service. You head into something that you think will be a time of incredible joy, like having a child or getting a new job or heading into retirement. And instead of joy, it brings unspeakable and unexpected sorrow and loss. And the other thing about this poem is that there's no order or progression to this list. There's no discernible connection. That's how random life is. Y'all, life happens not by you, but to you. It would be so great. <laughs> Wouldn't it be so great if life could be more like the Lego city? Like, I'll take three hours of laughter and dancing this week and 20 minutes of mourning next week, which then would be followed by five years of a brand new adventure, followed by a life of successful joy, right? It would be so great if life could be like that, but it's, it's not. And Kohelet wants us to honestly face the truth of our human experience. He says, look, y'all, this is, this is the way the world is, and there's a time for everything, and some of it is wonderful, some of it's terrible, and all of it is out of your control. This is not Legoland. Now, of course, there is, there is some predictability in life, right? You can be almost certain there's very high probability that the sun will set tonight in the same way it did last night. And there's very high chances that as we move into October, the leaves will start changing colors and they'll fall off the trees. And there's a very high probability that if you have a garden, it will not be producing nice, big, red, ripe tomatoes in January, right? So there is some predictability, but the thing is, is that you have no control over any of that, right? If you just keep on wearing flip-flops right into January, you cannot stop winter from coming. You will just have cold toes. That's, that's the way it is. Now, so we can't control time, but this does not uh, in any way keep us from trying to. Um, it, it's like we're obsessed with time, right? Like we want to believe that we can be beyond it. We can get around it. We can beat it. So many of us feel threatened by the passage and in, are in, even tortured by the movement of time. We say things like, where did the time go? There's not just, there's just not enough hours in the day, right? Make the most of your time. When will my time come? There's now a $4 billion industry that has grown up around productivity in time management. And the, the deep foundational premise of this industry is that if you can just manage your schedules and your time with greater skill, then you can design for your life the life that you want. This can be your best year ever. 
<laughs> well, it would just laugh in your face. Because he would say, this isn't, this, that's just not the way the world works. You've, you've got to, sur- just as you must surrender to the inevitable change from summer to fall and fall to winter, so you must submit to the steady march of time and what it brings, right? The joy, the sorrow, the laughter, the mourning, the sowing, the reaping, the birth, the life, the aging, the death. And this is how he ends his poem, verse nine. What do we gain from all this toil? What's the payoff? And his implied answer is nothing. Because you endure all these seasons that life brings, all the wonderful and the terrible things. And in the end, you're put in a box in the dirt. It's like we're pawns trapped in this like relentless movement of time that we have, we have so little control over. And then in the end, you die. And this is the problem of time, right? Contrary to Pete Seeger's lovely song, these first eight verses are not supposed to make you feel groovy. They're supposed to make you feel a little overwhelmed and a little perplexed at the absurdity of time, what it brings, how fast it moves, how random it feels. Y'all, this is not Legoland. This is life. So what do we do about this? Well, I want you to know if you look carefully at, at, at this passage, the first eight verses, did you notice that there is no mention of God in the first eight verses? Did you notice that? In some ways, anybody could have written that poem. You know, an atheist philosopher could have written the poem. A secular poet could have written that poem. This is why the birds were able to turn it into such a best-selling song. This is why this poem is often read at humanist funerals, right? Because he's writing within the secular frame, right, of this world, as if there is nothing outside the boundaries of the earth. There's nothing distinctively Jewish or Christian about this poem at all. It's just a very powerful description of what it's like to be a human being. But note, note with me that starting in verse 10, he begins to bring God in the picture. You guys see that? So verse 10, he says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful. And actually the Hebrew translation is better like fitting or well-ordered. He's made everything well-ordered in this time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Well, what's going on here? Well, initially, at least, he's making the problem worse, right? Because, you know, life is difficult enough when it feels so haphazard and random, but now he's saying that God is actually overseeing all of this, that all of this random brutality of life the things that you cannot control, it's not random at all. It's a pattern that God is allowing and overseeing and that God is actually the architect and the master builder of this all, that he's put the whole thing together. And in contrast to what it may seem, there is a divine purpose behind all of this. There is a, a master storyline from beginning to end, but here's the problem. You can't see any of it. Verse, verse 11 He says, we cannot know, you know, actually, sorry, verse 11 says that God has put eternity into our hearts. And what I think that means is that we all carry this sense of like timelessness, this sense that like, I want to get out somehow of this constrained punctiliar moment of my life that I'm living in and see the bigger picture, but I just can't. You know, unlike your dog or your cat or your pet hamster, which has no sense of the passage of time and it can only really inhabit the present moment, human beings, we have a sense 
of eternity, of timelessness. Like we want to get outside of our limitations and actually see our life in the fuller context. We know deep down there's a greater story, a bigger picture that we can't see, but we can't get to it, as he says in verse 11. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Hey, are y'all following me here? I know this is getting a little deep. Listen, let me give you a little illustration, okay? So like, have y'all seen one of those like ancient tapestries that ancient societies would weave where they would like tell the story of a battle or tell the story of a king's reign or something? Have you seen one of those in a museum? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment, like just imagine a big long tapestry and it's telling the story of time, of human history from beginning to end, okay? You have that picture in your mind of a tapestry hanging on a wall. Now, where are you in the tapestry? you are a tiny little, almost imperceptible dot somewhere in that timeline of history. And what we all want to do is to see the tapestry, the whole thing, right? We want to somehow get out of our little place in it and see the story in full, but we just can't. You can't see the full tapestry when you're trapped inside of it. And this is what Kohelet is frustrated about. He's saying God's purposes are so beyond us. And this leaves him feeling like God has laid this terrible burden on the human race. And, you know, just as an aside, the question of meaning and purpose for human beings is actually a bigger problem if you are not a believer than if you are. I'm sorry, it's a bigger problem if you are a believer than if you aren't. That's what I meant to say. Because look, if you, if you don't believe in God then the absurdity and seeming randomness of human life is not a problem for you because nobody's in charge. We're just accidentally here. We're just featherless bipeds. And so it's not a problem for you. You just have to deal with reality as it is. But if you're a Christian, and if, or if you want to be, or if you're a believer in God somehow, then you got a problem. Because if there is a good and powerful God who is overseeing all of this absurdity of human existence, of history, and all of the brutality that has happened since the beginning of time, and if God is good, then why doesn't he do something about it? And if God is powerful, why doesn't he put a stop to it? If you've never thought about that before, then you're not thinking about the world. And that's where Kohelet is. He's, tr- he's, he's frustrated. He's struggled. He's a believer in God, but he's stuck. He sees the randomness and brutality of life. He knows there's a greater meaning, but he can't get out of the tapestry to see the bigger picture. And so he's wondering, how can I live? How can I trust? How can I surrender to this God that I do not understand? Any of you feel that way? (laughs) So what would you say to him if you're having a beer with him? Or hot chocolate, kids? You know, what would you say to, what would you tell him? How would you make him feel better? Well, like we've been saying every week, Ecclesiastes is very true. That's why I love this book. It speaks to the universality of the human experience. Whether you are a Christian or not, you resonate with this stuff, right? But as Christians, Christians believe that we have been given a perspective because of Jesus Christ that gives us access to the purposes of God that Kohelet could never get to. So like him, we yearn, right? We yearn to get out of the tapestry, to understand the meaning of our lives. But here's the key. You cannot get an answer about the meaning of the tapestry when you're in the tapestry yourself. If you're a character in the story, right? If you're a character trapped in the story, you can't get the bigger picture about the story when you're actually in it. So what do you need? 
You need the author, the painter, the weaver, somehow to reveal to you the meaning of it all. The only way is from the outside in. And this is what Christians believe has been given to us in the person of Jesus. Here's an illustration. Um, have any of you guys heard of a British author named Dorothy Sayers? One of my, one of my favorite British authors. Um, she wrote a series of detective stories about a character named Lord Peter Whimsey, who is a, a kind of a um, very intelligent but very melancholic detective. And she wrote 11 novels about Lord Peter Whimsey, best-selling novels at the time in England. And what's interesting is about halfway through the series of novels, another character appears, another important character, and her name is Harriet Vane. And later on in Dorothy Sayers' life, when she's getting older and she's giving interviews, we discover who Harriet Vane is. And do you know who she is? She's Dorothy Sayers. That somewhere along in the process of her creative work, Sayers began to feel deep mercy and pity for her own protagonist. She began to feel sorry for him, for his loneliness, for his isolation, for his sadness. And so in her compassion, she wrote herself into the story as a character to love him, to marry him, and ultimately to save him from his despair. Isn't that beautiful? And kind of weird. Yeah, definitely kind of weird. And yet this is actually what we believe. This is what Christians believe, is that John 1 says, the word, the one through whom all things exist, the author of all things, the word became flesh and entered into the story, made his dwelling among us. That through this person, Jesus, God has not given us answers per se, I and mean, we still have to live in the hebel, but through this person, Jesus, who we are invited to see and know and encounter, that through him, we actually come to know the writer, the author, the weaver, and that in knowing Jesus, we can begin to trust that this God is good and kind and strong and loving and worthy of our trust. We begin to get a sense of the bigger story that we are a part of, that life isn't meaningless, but that through this person, Jesus, we begin to know that life is good and yet profoundly broken and God has come to do something about it. And that because of the resurrection of Jesus, a, a, a happy ending is actually coming. And that there will be a day when God will take this brutality and pebble of our world and redeem it. That God indeed will do something beautiful in this time. And so the good news of God's redeeming of time is that God has not left us in the pebble. That the eternal God beyond time has entered into time in the incarnation to save us and to set us free. And this is the hope that as Christians, we hold on to. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave you for living in time today? Like, this is a nice idea, right? This is a nice message, a nice sermon, but what are you gonna do? How are you gonna live tomorrow in this world? It's not Legoland. It's not Barbie land. It's not the world you want it to be. It's not the world you wish it would be. It's this world. What are you gonna do? Well, let's apply uh, some wisdom from Kohelet through the lens of the gospel. So even though we are so out of control right? We have that as a premise. We're, we are, we're fundamentally out of control of our time. Yet at the same time, so many of our efforts are given to controlling our time and resisting the limitations of our human finitude. I am the worst 
Um, I, 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 if you know me well, I am sort of obsessed. All the, the productivity, the $4 billion productivity, I've like spent, I'm like a billion dollars of that productivity, just me and my purchases. Like I, I am, I've, for years, I've just studied and learned, figured out how I can be more productive and more efficient with my time. Um, if you know the Enneagram, a three on the Enneagram, so like getting more out of my own performance is really important to me. In college, I tried to train myself in polyphasic sleep training, which is what Navy SEALs use to sleep less in order to be more efficient. Unfortunately, I almost drowned in the shower because I fell asleep. This, this kind of idiot that, that I was. And um, so this is an extreme example, but all of you are guilty of it because whether it's obsessing over productivity tools or resisting the process of aging or holding on to the way things were, we are tormented by the idea of being limited by our time and our finitude. And yet, where does all this leave us? In, in his wonderful book, 4,000 Weeks, which is about the number of weeks you have on this planet, Oliver Berkman, the philosopher, says that the great lie of the productivity movement is that one day, if you just do the right things, your life will be under control. And instead, he says, the more you resist the limitations of your life and the more you try to control it, the more anxious and out of control you'll actually feel. Has that ever happened to you? And Kohelet would agree. He would say all of this is this futile attempt to control our lives and get outside the boundaries of our finitude. But here's the truth, y'all. You are tiny. You're finite. You are contingent. You are time-bound. And you can no more plan out and direct your time in your life than you can change the seasons from moving from summer to fall. So in contrast to resisting our, the passage of time, resisting our finitude, resisting our limits, Kohelet offers an invitation to receiving. Not resisting, but receiving our lives instead. So he writes this in verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. He's saying, look, you can't control your life. Here's the one thing you can count on, change. You're born, you live, you die. Beautiful things, terrible things are gonna happen to you. You can't change any of this. But instead of resisting all of this, here's the way of wisdom. Learn to receive your life as it comes to you and whatever God in his providence orders it and offers it. The farmer, you know, the farmer, a good farmer, has to learn to recognize and then absolutely surrender to the seasons as they are given to him. If he acts outside of the seasons, he won't be a good farmer. So Wendell Berry, um, I love Wendell Berry, in one of his writings, he says, my wife and I planted our garden in April, not because of any convention or custom or law, but because it is time. It's the right time. The wise farmer does not resist, but submits to and ultimately orders his life around the seasons that he's given and finds the good within it. In the same way, says Kohelet, the wise person will be one who does not resist, but learns to receive whatever season God happens to bring you in at the moment. So look, the person in their 70s should not expect the body and the energy of a 35-year-old, as much as the internet ads would suggest to you otherwise. Your free time after you have kids will not be the same as your free time before you had kids. It will be different 
And by different, I mean non-existent. <laughs> your, your life and experience with God and with other people will change over different seasons of your life. Um, I have a friend who tells a story about um, her favorite shirt. When she was in elementary school, she had a pink tank top. It was her favorite shirt. And she wore it um, as many times as she could, as much as her mom could wash it. And then she moved into middle school and she kept wearing it. She started to grow. She kept wearing this pink tank top. She went through puberty. She entered into high school. She kept wearing this pink tank top. Her mom was starting to say things to her. Her, people, her friends starting to say that she didn't stop wearing the tank top until one day it cut off the circulation to her arms. Then she realized it's time to give up the tank top. <laughs> and and our, sometimes we do this with God. Like we pine for the experiences of the way things used to be without being open to what God may be wanting to give you and offer to you in a new way in the here and now. And instead of controlling our lives toward the life that we want, he's inviting us to receive our lives as they actually are. And to do it fearing God, which means trusting that God knows a whole lot more about the storyline of our lives that we do. When you can stop insisting that God gives you the life that you wished you had rather than the one that it actually is yours, if you can stop doing that, your eyes can be open to see God's gifts in whatever chapter you happen to be in. You know, Jesus, I think, must have read Ecclesiastes because he said so many things that were mirroring some of this wisdom. He said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. He said, if you want to be in my kingdom, you've got to become like a child. God wants us to be like children who trust their parents and know best because guess what? The parents, kids, guess what? Your parents can see things that you can't see and they know things that you could never know. I know as hard as it might be to believe right now. I'll never forget when we brought our little Sophie, our firstborn, um, she developed like a really bad pneumonia and RSV or something when she was two. And we had to bring her to the emergency room and they had to put, um, like she was dehydrated. So they had to put um, an IV into her arm and she was screaming and her eyes were wide and tears were running down her face. And she was looking at us as if to say, I thought you loved me. She had no concept that what was happening to her was for her healing, was for her good. And the nurse just kept saying to her, look at your mom and dad, look at your mom and dad, look at your mom and dad. Ironically, children are strongest when they are the most dependent when they are most living in the deep trust that despite the inexplicability of their lives, what they need will be given to them by a trusting parent when they need it. And this is the kind of posture of life that you're being invited into. There are so many things about your life that you just can't understand. And I'm afraid that you might never have the big picture, but you know you have a good father. You know that because of Jesus. And therefore, you can live in trust, you can relinquish control, you can accept the boundaries of your finitude, you can receive the seasons of life as coming from God's hand who knows infinitely more than you do about what's best for your life. So here's what I want to invite you to do. When you wake up this week, put your feet on the floor, just like that, feet on the floor, and say, Lord, I want to be where my feet are. I want to be today where my feet are. I don't want to live regretting the past. I don't want to live worrying about the future. I don't want to live reaching for the past, aching for the horizon. I want to be where my feet are, and I want to receive my life as it 
actually is. What gifts do you have for me today? How might I trust you today? You know, the time you're in is not where you'll always be. If you're weeping now, in a few weeks, laughter may come. If you're dancing now, the people you're dancing with, you'll be mourning with one day. But here's where you are today. And if you can cultivate like a farmer an awareness of this, the seasonality of life, perhaps you will not be undone by a season of weeping. You won't expect perpetual dancing. And you may even be able to enter into seasons of aging and sorrow and even death, recognizing that God is there. And this is part of what it means to be human, this side of the new creation. So let me close. No one, nobody understands time and eternity. We all have our theories, but we're dealing with a mystery. The only thing you can count on is change. The sun rises and sets. The acorns fall and turn into oak trees. Rivers move through mountains and chisel out ravines. You're born, you live, you die. Change. But the author of Hebrews says something crazy. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's like, y'all, this, you know, this beats any time travel movie. It's like Jesus, who lived a limited, finite human existence in 33 years of life on this planet. This man who was born and lived and died and rose again, this man is somehow the same in all of history. Who he has always been will always be who he will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How does that change your life? Believing this, claiming this? Well, you might say not much at all. Trusting in Jesus will not make it so that you have more control of your life, I'm sorry. But here's what it'll do. Here's what it'll do. Knowing that this Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever means that not you won't have more control over your life, but it means that you can belong to him. You can belong to him. You can belong to the son who has eternally shared the father's love and the spirit you can belong to the lamb who's been slain before the foundation of the world. You can let this be your hope in life, in death, in sorrow, in joy, in mourning, in dancing. No matter what Hebel comes your way, does this answer your questions? No, of course not. But it gives you the one thing you most need, God's presence. The knowledge that he's with you, the deep knowledge that at every point in your life, this is now what is true. You are not alone. Whatever time it is, Jesus Christ is there. He is the eternal now. Can you receive this gift in whatever life God has given you today? Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Just want to invite you to do something um, just a little exercise that you might practice this week. Just want you to think of one thing in your life that you wish you could change. I want you to think of one thing in your life that is a gift, no matter how small it might be. And you could just pray this kind of prayer to the Lord. Lord, I receive all of these things as the life you've given me for today. Help me to trust you 
and to be faithful to you as you are eternally faithful to me. In Jesus' name, amen.